The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you guys so much. It's a beautiful picture. I remember when I was young, my mom doing a backyard Bible study, and I learned Psalm 23, same songs. It's awesome. I want to invite you guys, uh, the whole church, to stand with me as I read aloud the text that we'll be studying today. We're going to be studying Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Romans 12, 9 through 21, and Paul, inspired by God, says, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lord, I pray that you will take these words, these scriptures, and by your spirit bring about a transformation in our hearts, that you will make us a place that loves like this, and that it will be a powerful testimony to the love that we've experienced in Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, as we look at these verses in Romans uh, 12, we come to the point of Scripture that is a lot more practical, a lot more simple to understand than we've been looking. We, we got through 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, incredibly intense, incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult to understand and interpret. But when we get to these verses where Paul describes the love that should take place in the community of faith, it's not so hard to understand, but man, is it hard to apply. Bob Knight and staff, as we were discussing this, quoted Mark Twain, and here's what Mark Twain said. Mark Twain said, It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. 
And that's exactly what we're struggling here when we look at this text. It's not hard to figure out what Paul is telling us to do. It's just incredibly hard to live it out. But by God's grace, we should today in these verses both be encouraged to to aspire to this type of love in our lives, to, to be like this, to have this as a reality in our lives, but to be challenged to... To, to make the decision, I'm going to live like this. I'm going to ask God for his help to, to express this type of love, the love that I'm received through Christ and pour it out into other lives. Now, as we look at these verses, we need to remember in the days ahead, Paul has worked through 12 chapters or 1 through 11. He's worked through experiencing the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we have, the, have, have experienced the grace of God through faith in Christ, the Spirit of God comes into our lives, gives us a new heart. He enables us to live this way, and He empowers us to live this way. And as we meditate on the gospel, we are motivated to live this way. But it's hard work to live this way. And so we want to be encouraged that we can grow in this type of love and also be challenged to make an effort to make this a reality in our lives. Paul is challenging us to be a community of true love. And each step of the way, we don't want to turn this into some type of merit with God. It's not that we do this so God loves us. We do this as we remember and experience that God loves us completely in Christ. And so let's look at the characteristics of true love and what this should look like in our community, in our lives, if we say that we have participated in the love of Christ. The first thing we see Paul says is true love The love of Christ is authentic. Look at the first part of verse 9. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. I heard this morning someone say in his his journey of faith, he came here, I'm getting to know him, it's his third time here, and he said, well, I walked away from the church because of some hypocrites. The church is filled with hypocrites. The church is a place where hypocrites come to be changed. Paul says, Love without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is where the outside doesn't match the inside. Paul is saying, when I tell the church to be loving like Christ, I'm not telling you to put on niceties, to be fake, to have no hard conversations, but to just do that fake for your face. And when people come in, just be nice and polite and and do the church thing and make Christ look good and go home. He says, that's disgusting. That's not Christian love. He's saying it needs to come from a changed heart, a heart that genuinely has experienced the love of Christ. Where Romans 5, 8, he says, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And when he he, he comes into our lives, he changes our hearts. He gives us a taste of the love of God that then starts to teach us how to truly love from the inside out. And he's explaining to us, That is a genuine, authentic love. You know what's so cool is is that our church has that. I praise God for it, but every connection group, virtually every time, we go six weeks where guests come and they, they hear all about our church. And at the end, I ask them to give me feedback or at the beginning, I ask them what brought you here or, or who, who brought you here. And almost always I hear the story, well, we've done this, we tried this. But when we walked in this place, there was something 
special. There was something different about this place. They seemed to genuinely care. Authentic love. I praise God for that. That's what Christ does in a place where he's changing lives. And he's calling us to genuinely love one another from the heart. He's not saying fake it. He's saying genuinely love even those people who are hard to love. So what do we do when our heart doesn't feel love and we're called to love genuinely? Do we say, well, I'm just going to be rude because I'm supposed to genuinely represent my heart? No, we begin spiritual battle. Instead of battling to make them more like we want them to be, we do heart business because that's sin in our heart that keeps us from loving. That's sin that says, I can't love you unless you act or belong or be a certain way. Christ loved us unconditionally despite the fact that we didn't deserve it and he transforms us and gives us the grace to love the same way. And so we need to to not just embrace this fake, phony attitude, but we also know that we act loving and we serve as we begin to do work on our heart and we ask God by His grace to change our hearts. What does that look like? That's the old spiritual battle that we have to take under our hearts over and over and over again. We repent, we acknowledge, we confess. This is sin in my heart that I'm having a hard time loving this individual. I say, God, help me turn from this. I confess it to someone I know that I trust. I say, hey, would you agree to pray with me, hold me accountable, ask God to help me change my heart. I read the word of God like we saw last week, Romans 12, 1. In the view of the mercies of God, constantly preaching the gospel to ourselves, constantly reminding ourselves, God loved me though I was very unlovely. I need to love the way he loved me. We go to the word of God. We feed on the mercies of God. We share with community. We pray. We do battle. And God will begin to change our heart towards others. As Keller says, your heart is softened as you serve others. So Paul's called us to exemplify this genuine, heartfelt love for one another that comes from the grace of God. So I ask you, do you have that kind of heart today? Do you have a heart that genuinely has been changed by the love of Christ? Our mission statement is to glorify God by loving Christ, loving Christians, and loving neighbors and nations. The whole idea is that as we enter into a loving relationship with Christ, we start to be enabled and transformed to love that love spilling out of our lives to love Christians and the community of faith, but it doesn't stop there. It spills outside the walls of the church that we love neighbors onto the ends of the earth. We love the nations. And that's what we're praying. That's our whole mission here. That's what we're working towards, praying towards, equipping for, teaching and asking God, make this a reality in this place. So is that what you're asking God to do? To embrace the fact that you should love one another no matter what. So he says that our lives should be, we should love without hypocrisy. The second characteristic of the true Christian love is that it's godly. I get this from the second part of verse 9. It's godly in the sense that he says, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. The idea is that to truly love one another is to truly want what God wants for them. True love does not ignore sin in a person's life. That's not loving. 
The loving thing to do is to promote God's will in their life. Whether this is a marriage, we teach our students, our young people who are starting to consider the future and looking for who they might marry one day, we teach them, you want someone who is going to promote the love of God's will in your life. You're going to want a worship partner. Their job is God's gift to you to promote godliness in your life, to, to speak truth into your life. It's not indulgence. The dating culture is one of indulgence. Who gives me what I want? That's not love. Love is wanting for you what God wants for you. Parents, our job is not to indulge our children, giving them everything they want, giving them what the culture says that they need. We are to give them what God says they need. And in relationships, that means sometimes speaking the truth in love. That means what the culture calls tough love. It means loving even when it means saying something that they're not going to like to hear. You know, we used to, uh, I remember way back uh, several years ago when we started, when we were younger as a church, in members meeting, we would line our new members up uh, as presenting them to the body and introducing them, saying, hey, this is so-and-so and so. We'd go down the line. And I remember we had a huge group this time. It was like the whole length in front of the stage. And uh, we, we spent our whole connection group and a lot of time on the front end saying, hey, this is what church is all about. Church is here to promote God's will in your life. That's why it's so wonderful and so important is that you join a church because the church family will genuinely love you and promote God's will in your life. We went through all that. And then we present them to the church. And afterwards, someone came up to me and said, you know those two are living together, right? I'm like, oh, what do I do? These were young Brand new Christians. We were so excited that they had come to faith. So excited that they had decided to join the church. And now it's like I was afraid. If I tell them that something needs to change here. And I tell them God's will. This is not God's will for your life. They're going to turn their back. They're going to misunderstand. They're going to hate the church. They're going to be another story that says, I'm never going to church because the church did this. And I thought, oh Lord, please help us love them well. So as elders, we talked about it. How can we love them well? What's the right thing to do? And the right thing to do was to promote God's will in their life. And so we began to talk conversations with them. We began to to help them understand. This is what the Word of God says. This is why this is not God's will. You can't test drive marriage. You can't try it out and see if they're the right one. Marriage is all in. And so what you're doing test driving isn't going to work, first of all. And it sends the wrong signal that, that... Sexual relationships is not, it's it's reserved, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's reserved for marriage. And so we began to talk to them and they said, now wait a minute, as young Christians, the pride started flesh, started coming up and getting a little red face and going, I don't think it's right for me to live my life worried about what everyone else is thinking. And I said, I get it, I understand. And we prayerfully, carefully walked down this process with them of helping to see that if God's will is best, then we're going to encourage you to experience God's will. None of it went the way I expected it to go. But it was difficult, prayerful, challenging work. But the short of it is, in the end, they ended up breaking off that relationship on their own. And they said, you know what? It was hard. It made us mad. We didn't want to do half the stuff y'all said. But in the end... We praise God for you. Thank you for telling us the truth. 
Sometimes that's the way it goes. Sometimes it doesn't go that way. But ultimately, we're called to speak the truth of God. It's not loving to ignore sin in their life, though it's very tempting to do so. Love is godly. It promotes God's will in a person's life. This is what should be happening in our marriages. This is what should be happening in our friendships. Students, friends are not your friends if they're promoting ungodly behavior in your life. You want godly friends who promote godly God's will in your life. Adults, the same is true for us. Love is godly. Love is without hypocrisy. Love is godly. Next, we see love is devoted. Look what he says in the second part of verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This idea of devotion in brotherly love is the idea that we are all children of God. I am your brother. You are my brother. We are brothers and sisters. We're family. We're family. We are to be devoted to one another. The criminal families use this. No matter what, I got your back. I don't care what happens. I'm there for you. You know what it means. This is what it should be like in the Christian family. Is blood runs thicker than water. I am there for you. I don't care how many times you fall. I'll be there to pick you back up. I don't care what time of night. If you need me, you call me. I'll be there for you. I got your back. That's what he's saying here. Be devoted to one another. And I want to tell you, I thank God I see that in this church. I give God all the glory for these examples, but I, I could beat you up to a pulp and leave out here feeling like dirt. And you'd say, that was a great sermon, Pastor. Because these are hard to apply, but I am strongly encouraged. Never have I been a part of a Christian community of faith that lives these things out more so than I see here in this church. The deans lost just about every physical possession they had in the recent floods. And this church was devoted to them. I didn't have to beg people. We didn't have a program. We didn't say, sign up, we're going to help the deans out. The people just stepped up and said, what can we do to help you? Several years ago, the Grangers were heading off to China to adopt their two new beautiful babies. And their home wasn't quite finished yet. And so the church rallied and finished preparing their home so that when those babies came back, they had a place to go. Brian and Katie Pinson have adopted their second child knowing that their children face tremendous, tremendous medical issues. I had texted Brian during a staff meeting just saying, Hey, man, once you know the staff's praying for you right now. And I get an email response and I quote, he says, Quote, I have to tell you, it was very encouraging to get your texts and to know you were praying. Simon's fever mysteriously disappeared early Monday morning. He went on to say, the last few months have been a whirlwind. It has been great to receive the texts and the phone calls checking in from all of you. It is always a reminder that we are part of the community and that we are loved. We appreciate you more than you know. Thank you for loving us and our little guys. Christian love is devoted. And I praise God for the way you're devoted to one another. Christian love is without hypocrisy. It's godly. It's devoted. And it's other-centered. Look at the second part of verse 10. Give preference to one another in honor. To honor someone is to attach significance 
to attach value to them. When you honor someone, you place their needs ahead of your own. You, you see them as deserving to have their needs met like you want your own needs met. To honor is to treat with great significance even those who others would say are insignificant. When we were talking about this in staff, great, uh, Jared was mentioning how in students this is so challenging. That in, when you're in the student's age, everything is about friendships and what others think of you. Students, when you see that person that everyone else is treating as insignificant, they are created in the image of God. They deserve to be honored, even if it costs you some popularity, even if it costs you your own reputation. Adults, there's people in our community that we consider insignificant. For whatever reason, we think they're not deserving of our placing their needs on equal ground with our own. The Lord says, if I've worked my love into your heart, then that should change. We should honor all people, all races, all economic class, all types of people, all personalities. We should honor them and consider their needs above our own. Other-centered is what God's called us to do. Love without hypocrisy. Godly love. Be devoted to one another. To be other-centered. Number five, love like Christ's love is persevering love. Look at verse 11 and 12. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. All these kind of seem to make sense in the context of relationships are messy. They're hard. They're not easy. They take work. It takes perseverance. You must press on. Be diligent. Fervent in the spirit. Prayerful. Asking God to do a work in your relationships. Not to give up on relationships. Even when someone's hurt you. Even when someone's injured you. Even when you felt the pain of someone you've trusted. God says persevere. Keep praying. Keep working. It is worth it. There's a book titled Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, written by Timothy Lane and Paul David Tripp. In chapter 2, he opens up saying, here's what relationships sound like. I want to know, I want you to think about, is this what the relationships in your life sound like? I had such high hopes for our friendship. What went wrong? I thought I had finally found someone I could trust. I can't believe you're questioning my integrity after all the things I've done for you. You see, it's always this way with you. I come to you and you turn the tables on me. You're so good at making other people feel guilty about your own failures. You don't have a clue how much you've hurt me. You betrayed our trust when you told what I said. Why does it always go here? We can't even discuss the weather without ending up in accusations. Is this what your relationships sound like? I pray that God's grace is infused into your relationships. I pray that you experience 
a relationship with Christ that is so real that it starts to change the relationships you have with one another. The, the vertical relationship of loving Christ should overflow into the horizontal relationships that you have. If you do, by God's grace, your relationships can start to sound more like this. Now I'm quoting his book again. I can't believe you would do such a thing for me. It's so encouraging. I did not have to go through all this alone. I've gotten as much as I have given. Your friendship has been a constant source of encouragement. You know, when we first met, neither one of us had any idea God, what God was going to do through our friendship. You know, what I appreciate is that while it hadn't always been easy, you've always been committed to dealing with our problems and our disagreements in a constructive way. Your honesty is refreshing. God has really used you in my life to help me speak honestly, but in a more godly manner. Is that what your relationships sound like? This is what God wants for you. You got this one on? There we go. Hey, everybody. So God wants these types of relationships. You saw the difference. Imagine two organizations. Imagine a worldly organization where characteristic the, the relationships are characterized by worldly attitudes, getting out of what I can out of this relationship, not so worried about what I can give. Imagine that type of organization, the backbiting, the nastiness, the fake attitudes that have to go on for that to exist and compare that to what you see when God is in the relationship. I thank God that God has changed our lives, that people here are practicing this, that I hear this all the time. I get texts like I've read you. I get emails all the time thanking God for what this person has done in my life, praising God for how this community group really was a part of God changing who I am. I cannot thank you enough, church, for allowing the grace of God to penetrate your relationships. It is a testimony to the powerful love of Christ. If you're not in a place like that, there's no, I'm not self-serving here. I'm telling you, we want you to be a part of that because we've experienced the power of being in a loving community that really wants good for your life. So God calls us, God expects, God equips, God motivates us to have relationships that are persevering relationships. Relationships that press on through the difficulty and the pain that is very real and very much a part of all human relationships. But in the end, by God's grace, they can be glorious, powerful tools in God's hands for our own good. Six, we see, I'm just using this term to cover verses 13 through 16. True love is generous. To be loving the way Christ is, it requires to be sacrificially giving of ourselves, comprehensively generous people. Look at verse 13. He says, We should be contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
This takes sacrifice. This takes giving. Rejoice with those who rejoice. You've got to give your heart to one another. You've got to care, truly. It is costly to care about people. It is hard, tiring, sacrificial, costly work to have your heart in other people's hands so that you weep when they weep and you rejoice when they rejoice. To be of the same mind toward one another, to not be haughty in mind, but to associate with the lowly and not to be wise in your own estimation. True love is a generous love. It is giving the way Christ gave. It is giving not just your money when there are needs, but your heart, your emotion, your energy, your time, your possessions. Someone needs a lawnmower, you let them borrow your lawnmower. Very practical. If someone needs your time, you give of your time. If someone needs a listening ear, You listen, sometimes at the wrong time, at the late hour or the early morning. This is the kind of love that Christ produces in us. It's a love that says, even though I feel you've persecuted me, I'm going to give to you. I see this week in and week out in our church. You know, we've got a little bitty benevolence line item in our budget. You know why it's such a small line item? It's because when someone in a community group says they have a need, that community group says, what do you need? Let me take care of that. When someone puts it on the city, which is kind of a Facebook type thing for our church members, when they put a need on there, the church steps up and says, what can we do to help? I don't have to bang the pulpit. I don't have to beg. I don't have to belabor. I don't have to say, someone please help out. I have to be honest with you. When I first hear a need and it's a big need, my first thing is, oh, I hope the church steps up. And every single time, the Lord has raised up a people who say, what can I do to help? It's awesome. It's a privilege. It's an honor to be a part of a church that does that. It's an evidence, a testimony to the grace of God working in a people that really my job, our staff and elders' jobs, most of the time our job is just communicating and coordinating. People saying, hey, I know the flood's going on. Who needs me? Who needs, does anybody need us to come over there? Who needs sandbags? What can I do to help? Hey, I know this is going on in their life. Did they ever get everything they needed met? That's, a, that's an awesome testimony to the, to the faithfulness of God in a people when they want to honor God with their lives. So the love of Christ is generous, and He makes His people a generous people. Finally, last but not least, the most challenging one that we face, love, true love, Christian love is forgiving. Verse 17, he says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, do all that you can do. Sometimes you can't do enough, but do all that you can do to be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Sometimes we need Christian friends to say, Don't. Take revenge. 
And then he gives us the way to think about it. He says, four, leave room for the wrath of God. For vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now that sounds fun, actually, to do that to your enemy, right? The idea is not that you're burning them to the ground. The idea is that you awaken them with your kindness. You awaken them to repentance. Notice what he says in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, when you don't forgive someone, you are overcome with evil. When you harbor bitterness and resentment, it devours you. From the inside out. Tragically, I've seen this too many times. Too many secondary, tertiary symptoms of illnesses, of problems in a life. Ultimately, when you get down to it, there's this seed of unforgiveness that has been left festering for years. And they are overcome by it. So what he says is, when you forgive... You overcome evil, and you do not allow it to overcome you. And he says, that's why we, another practical benefit of the love of Christ, we overcome evil. No matter how they respond, when you forgive, it doesn't matter if they receive it. It doesn't matter if they change. You've won. God ultimately will get justice in the end. God is going to bring all things to justice, and that's the idea. You've got to let God handle that. You've got to leave vengeance. You've got to leave revenge. You've got to leave justice in God's hands. And that frees you to say, I'm going to forgive the way Christ forgave me. While I was sinning, Christ died for me. He didn't wait for me to clean my act up before he says, okay, now I'm going to forgive you. He says, I'm going to forgive you while you're sinning against me. And he empowers us to forgive others the same way. Perhaps one of the most obvious places that I've seen this applied in a great way is in divorce in my own family. I've seen too many times where tragically divorce has led to unforgiveness and that unforgiveness has eaten a person up from the inside out. In my family, it's gone so well, we're weird. I have my mom... My dad and my stepmom, they're all in this church. They've all worked together. They've never said a crossword about the other in my presence. It is a picture of the forgiveness and the healing power of Jesus Christ. So much so, we're a little freaky. But that's what Christ does in our lives. And I praise God that I've been blessed with that gift in my family. We see a picture of love that is just so countercultural than this world. I mean, it's just not natural. None of this comes natural. Everything in our flesh resists all of this. We wake up each morning, if we let ourselves go the way our flesh wants to go, we're selfish, we're vengeful, we want to get even, we want to definitely make our, we take pleasure and it feels good to get our enemies and to pay them back. And Christ is the only hope of changing all of this and making us able to love the way he loves. So what is the impact of something like this? It is powerful. 
I hear testimonies all the time of the powerful change that has taken place in people's lives because of the love of Christ. I want to read to you some excerpts that Matt Moore published an article. He got his article published with the Gospel Coalition this week. Matt Moore was a member of our church, and he was one of the eight persons who went down to New Orleans to plant a church. Our Kyle and Susie Jaggers, Kyle was on staff. He felt called to plant this church. We asked, and we had a little bitty church at the time, just God calling anyone to go down there. We had eight people move their family, go down to New Orleans to plant a church, and they're still down there planting, and we're still supporting, and God's doing a work down there. Well, Matt Moore is one of those eight. But I remember when Matt first started coming, he sat right over here. As soon as church was over, he darted out. And Kyle and I started talking to staff, who was that? I know I've seen him. And Kyle remembered, that's the guy we've been seeing on the blog. And he's had this real, I mean, his blog, when he, when he posts on this topic of homosexuality, he has hundreds of thousands of hits. And he started coming, and Kyle started talking to him. And Matt said in his article this week about how he struggled when God saved him. He saved him out of a life of homosexuality. He saved him out of the community of homosexuality. And he brought him to faith. And he started visiting churches. He said, I visited churches for two years, but I struggled to find community. And he says, he explains, the reason he struggled was because of his own insecurities and his own fears. Fears about fitting in. Fears of being rejected. And so he said, I hid in the shadows. I left church as soon as I could. He said he desperately longed for Christian friendships and for community, but he was afraid of rejection and so much more. And then he said he visited Norris Ferry, and he describes what happened. And he says, I quote, After the service concluded, I began to sneak out of the building when some guy literally began yelling my name. I turned around and slowly began making my way toward his unashamed shout, shout to this unashamed shouter who successfully interrupted my escape. This is Kyle Jaggers, obviously. He reached out his hand to shake mine, introducing himself again, and after a few minutes of chit-chat, he released me from what I'm sure he could tell was a terribly awkward situation for me. But little did, he know, little did I know that terribly awkward situation would be the beginning of an incredible friendship. A friendship that would transform my life in a million ways. The power of a handshake. Now I want you to hear how Matt describes this friendship. I want you to see this is Romans 12, 9 through 11 being fleshed out. At Kyle's prodding, Kyle and I started meeting once a week for breakfast. I thought our conversations would be forced and awkward, but they weren't at all. They were fluid, honest, comfortable. He didn't shy away from my messy homosexual past or my ongoing struggle with those tendencies. He spoke comfortably about this struggle of mine, not painting it any weirder or worse than his own struggles. Kyle engaged me in a way that didn't make me feel my personality and sin struggles invalidated me as a man. He treated me like an equal, an equal in Christ, an equal in manhood. Though I experienced an unprecedented level of comfort and ease in my relationship with Kyle, I still retreated from the other two men in our super small church. You can't hide in a church of eight. However, just like Kyle, neither accepted my retreat. 
They both relentlessly pursued my friendship and made constant efforts to make me feel I belonged. They sat down and talked to me. Listen to how simple this is, yet profound. They sat down and talked to me. They invited me over for dinner or for coffee. They initiated conversations about things in which they knew I had interest. They asked about my life. They asked about my family. They told me about their life. They told me about their family. They shared their struggles in a way that showed me they didn't view my same-sex attraction as worse or weirder than their own moral brokenness. These guys embraced the patient work of pushing through my walls and getting to know me. Guys, this is Christian love. This is what God calls us to. Finally, Matt describes the impact that this love had on his life. He says, Growing to see myself as nothing more and nothing less than a redeemed man who struggles with the flesh might be the most freeing transformation I've experienced as a Christian. It freed me from anxiety, from feelings of inferiority, from living in the shadows of isolation, and it's freed me to meaningful friendship and fellowship with a local church, with a community of men who love Jesus. If the guys I've spent the latter half of this article describing hadn't rallied around me in authentic friendship, I would have experienced none of this. I am so grateful God brought men into my life who didn't try to give me a guy makeover. Instead, they sought me as I was, loved me when I didn't want them to, allowed me to learn what manhood is really about. They really never know the depths that they've enriched my life. Father God, make this more and more true of us each day. Lord, I give you all the praise and all the glory for the love of Christ that I know is powerfully moving in this community of faith. And Lord, I pray that more and more that we experience the love of Christ in and among ourselves, day in and day out, that healing is brought in lives, transformation is brought to marriages, communities investing in one another. And I pray it's all a testimony of your love and your grace to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, so that every person in Shreveport experiences the love of Christ, the healing power of forgiveness, the reconciliation with God and with one another, the fellowship in the Spirit, the life transformation that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ and with His people. Lord, we praise You and ask You to work in our hearts more and more each day to display Your power and Your love. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.